But the same thing holds true here. I think states like Arizona and Utah and many others who have already passed education savings accounts are going to be at a great uh, advantage over other states that don't do this five or 10 years down the road. Do you agree with that? I do. I mean, I was just talking to my husband, who is an actual rocket scientist. Um, And so he's been involved in a lot of the space conversations around what's happening with Texas. And Texas is really positioned as the innovation state when you've got SpaceX and Blue Origin, NASA, and you've got all these really innovative, disruptive industries that are moving to Texas. We have to have this pipeline of educated students ready to enter the workforce. And I believe that education savings accounts are part of creating the pipeline to a longer and more sustained innovation state. Americans are capable of achieving extraordinary things when they have the freedom and opportunity to do so. This is American Potential. And here's your host, Jeff Crank. Welcome to another edition of American Potential. Thanks for being with us. You know, not much good came out of COVID. In fact, COVID and the government reaction to it caused massive disruption in America and in the world. But you know, one good thing did come out of the disruption, and that's education reform. Education reform and a move towards educational freedom. Parents became more involved in their children's education, and in turn, they wanted more say over that education. Elected officials in state after state have responded by passing legislation that enhances educational freedom and parental involvement in education, and that can only be a positive reform. And we're seeing the benefits in many states that have taken positive steps towards educational empowerment. States are often providing this opportunity to students and their families through something called education savings accounts, or ESAs. Now, we've done a lot of other episodes on ESAs because states such as Utah, Arizona, Florida, West Virginia, Arkansas, and many others have passed some form of education savings account for students in their states. In a state which often leads the nation in innovation, Texas, tried to pass an ESA bill this past legislative session, but it failed. However, they have an opportunity to try again during a special session. And on today's episode, we have two guests, Cindy Nick, who is a former public school teacher, but now is a grassroots engagement director, and uh, Genevieve Collins, who is the state director of Americans for Prosperity in Texas, to talk about how ESAs will benefit Texas students and how they intend to get ESAs passed in the Lone Star State. Genevieve and Cindy, thanks for joining me. How are you both? Doing great. Thank you. Good morning. Well, how are you? Good. Okay. Well, Cindy, I want to start off with you. You were a, uh, you, you are a dance instructor, as I understand it. And you had kids who performed in the Macy's Day Parade. So you got to tell me about that. <laughs> uh, great fun. Yes. I spent the first about 22 years of my educational career actually in the fine arts department and uh, did teach dance and uh, performance teams, drill teams, dance teams. Um, and we had an opportunity to perform in the Macy's Day 
Thanksgiving Day Parade uh, on an annual basis because our students were excelling in what they were doing and were invited to be part of the opening production number. Um, as a result, I, after a couple of years, was asked to be on uh, staff with some of those uh, on some of those tours. And I was able to actually participate in the parade myself and be sort of a, um, um, a, a liaison between the girls and um, and the staff, the parade staff. And so it was great fun. And you also, I understand you also had got to perform in a Super Bowl halftime show. Um, that would be true. Um, wow. Back in, back in my college days, uh, Tyler <laughs> Junior College, I danced with the Apache Bell drill team and we were invited to perform at Super Bowl uh, 12 in New Orleans uh, it was the first Super Bowl in a dome stadium and uh, yeah so it was great fun well that's amazing Genevieve I understand uh, you don't move around very much you're a seventh generation Texan is that right why leave paradise when you found it early my family got to Texas <laughs> in 1851 and figured why the heck are we gonna leave this fabulous place so, yeah, <laughs> we are planted. spoken like a true Texan, Genevieve. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, every Texan's uh, favorite topic is talking about how great Texas is. That's right. How great Texas Absolutely. is. And Texas is. I mean, it's a great state. It's a very I talked about the innovation of Texas and it is a wonderful state uh, doing doing amazing things economically uh, and in a lot of areas. Let, let me start with you, Cindy. Cindy, you were a public school teacher for 35 years. Yes. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your experience as a public school teacher. Okay. Well, as I mentioned, I spent the first 23 years or so in the fine arts world, but then decided to go back into the classroom. My second um, major in college was history, social studies. Um, I really, really wanted to teach that badly. And so went back into the classroom teaching uh sixth, seventh, and eighth grade social studies. Uh, my favorite um, time period was when I was teaching eighth grade U.S. history and seventh grade Texas history. But during that period of time, I, I was on multiple campuses. And during one um, tenure that I had on a middle school campus, I began to notice, although I absolutely loved my job and what I was doing, and I was giving my heart and soul to uh, preparing um, lessons um, to present to students in the classroom, what I was noticing is it was such a disparity between um, what was going on from classroom to classroom, from campus to campus, and even from district to district. And, and it began to be um, obvious to me that although uh, public education standards were supposed to be somewhat um, uniform throughout the state, um, the same thing was not going on in every single school, every single campus, and definitely not every single classroom. So there were lots of things that began to bother me about public education, but I continued to work really hard to make it better, to improve it, to give input by jumping on to curriculum teams, jumping on to leadership teams, um, even participating with Texas Education Agency, writing curriculum for the state of Texas for social studies, because I felt like that, you know, I could either complain about it or I could try to be part of the solution. But what I began to see is that as hard as I was working, uh, both um, behind the scenes and in the classroom, um, there were many barriers and obstacles to um, preventing um, true success from actually happening. 
And um, I was lucky enough to work on one campus at one point where I was given the freedom and creativity to actually um, and treated like a professional educator um, and trusted to actually do what I felt like was best with students. And I would say that that was probably the most productive um, years that I had when I was given that opportunity. But um, I also have worked on campuses where I felt like that um, the expectations were continuously lowered um, and I was expected to lower my expectations as well. And it was frustrating as a classroom teacher to not be able to teach to the level that I felt like I needed to 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 get my students um, to the place where they needed to be. Um, my last four years, um, four to five years, I spent teaching eighth grade U.S. history and I began realizing the importance of teaching kids um, to be productive members of society and to go out and make a difference in the world. And my classroom motto was make history happen. And, you know, that we're not just experiencing and learning history, but we should be making history. And so when I retired in 2019, um, I really was just going to kick back and relax and find a beach somewhere and read a good book. And um, that didn't happen. I uh, <laughs> were just too much work to do. So here I am. <laughs> great. Well, we're, we're, this is what makes America great is people like you who already come out and have that expertise and then go and apply it to try and help others. Now you worked with a gentleman who left the public school system and started his own school because he saw some of the students needing kind of a non-traditional learning environment. Talk a little bit about the school that he opened. Yes, that's Kingdom Life Academy. My friend Joel Inge, he's amazing. He's not only an amazing, amazing educator, he's an amazing person. And what he noticed, we were teaching middle school together on a low performing campus both working really hard. And this, the students on that campus needed something different than a traditional educational model. But the district we were in, uh, you know, we were pretty much expected to play by the rules. But Joel was one of those people who said, you know, I'm putting kids first. And he did what had to be done, even if it didn't fit the exact model that we were expected to teach by. And he would see success with these young men who were struggling to pay attention in school. They couldn't focus. They had outside issues that were affecting them. And so basically, um, we parted ways as we both went to different campuses at, at um, some point. But later on down the road, he was in a classroom and he realized that there was a young man that he just he just could not reach um, in the traditional model that he was teaching. And, and and he just broke down and, and became very emotional. And he said, I'm done. I'm done with this. There has to be a better way. And I can't tell the story like Joel tells the story. But a few years down the road, Joel did feel a calling to open his own campus. And he made great sacrifices to do so, including selling his own home, um, living with basically nothing for about four to five years. Uh, he was able to find uh, property to be donated uh, for his campus and began building. He does not take a salary. His students attend on a sliding scale and he has sixth through 12th graders who would otherwise be basically dropping out of school or be considered high risk students. And the contrast is amazing because under his leadership and the school model that he has created, they are not only achieving great things, they have become business owners, entrepreneurs, some of them have gone to West Point. 
He has students who are attending local colleges. It's incredible. And I'm telling you that it is strictly because he decided that there had to be a better and different way to teach some students because one size does not fit all. And we use that as a cliche a lot, but it's very, very true. And if you've ever been in a classroom, it doesn't matter if you're with gifted students or with low achieving students, high risk students, it doesn't matter. You will, if you're a good teacher, you will recognize very quickly that every child in your class needs something unique. Well, it sounds like we better have Joel on uh, an episode of the podcast. What an amazing <laughs> story that sounds like. So um, we'll, we'll, I'll ask Monica, Monica to reach out and see if we can get Joel to tell that story. I mean, that there are so many educators like that in public school systems that that really want to help kids. That's why they got into teaching. And right. the system prevents them from from being able to do that. And so sometimes they have to break out of the system like Joel did. That's an that's an incredible story. Um, Genevieve, this past session, legislative session, you worked to pass education savings accounts, but it didn't pass in Texas. Tell us what happened. Well, let me set the table a little bit just so folks have an understanding that in Texas, there are 254 counties that make up our state. Inside those 254 counties are unique independent school districts. We have over 1,200 independent school districts. So we have, what, six times the amount of school districts than we do counties. And with that, <laughs> right. being, with that being said, it's important to note that the majority of our school districts are small. There's about, there's over 900 school districts that have a thousand students or less. And usually these school districts are the largest employer in their small town. Now, when we began our journey this session, starting in January, talking about school choice, we didn't go about creating this false narrative that it's public schools versus everything else. We really wanted to say that this is public schools and an all of the above solution because it's about the child. And really, we have been fighting the school choice battle in Texas for over 40 years. My father has been a part of the school choice fight. Uh, he started in the 80s. My grandparents were a part of this, you know, back in the 60s. So this is a long going problem. But during session, what we really did was focus on education savings accounts and making sure that every child is funded. Now, there were a lot of factors that were kind of out of our control, but I will say what Americans for Prosperity and the Libre Initiative did during session was demonstrate that the power of the grassroots combined with a platform to discuss policy is the absolute game changer for getting people's attention. We brought over 45 people to testify on the specific education savings account bill. Cindy just mentioned Joel Inge. He was there. He shared his testimony. And he was just one of 45 that we brought. We had more advocates for school choice in this session than we ever did before. And we did it, we did it through positive, supportive messaging that this is not about being punitive. This is about being supportive of students. And unfortunately, because Texas has so many rural areas, many of the rural Republican legislators, as well as a lot of urban uh, Democrat legislators, are just vehemently against it. 
You know, Texas is not a union state. However, we do have teachers unions that are here. And they basically said this narrative that rural Republicans really glommed onto is that if you support education savings accounts, you're defunding public schools. And that's just a false narrative. But it's a it's a battle cry that we've heard for the last 40 years. And we have a solution to solve it. Uh, and we have a lot more folks that are seeing where Cindy lives. She's in rural Texas. We have a lot more rural Republicans that are seeing that our presence in their communities is going to demand that they step up and support children. And they are taking note. Cindy's already been able to help flip a vote, a very key and decisive vote. AFP and Libre in general have already flipped four votes just during uh, the summer. So we're very net positive that we're going to get something done. Well, you know, as you look around the country, I've kind of made this argument that I think states that don't enact some kind of an ESA or an education savings account are going to put themselves at a disadvantage, right, economically. And, you know, Texas has always been held out as this powerhouse. I mean, uh, I know your governor loves to compare uh, the, the the results economically of Texas versus states like California because they've made better choices from a government standpoint but the same thing holds true here. I think states like Arizona and Utah and many others who have already passed education savings accounts are going to be at a great advantage over other states that don't do this five or 10 years down the road. Do you agree with that? I do. I mean, I was just talking to my husband, who is an actual rocket scientist. Um, and so He's been involved in a lot of the space conversations around what's happening with Texas. And Texas is really positioned as the innovation state when you've got SpaceX and Blue Origin, NASA, and you've got all these really innovative, disruptive industries that are moving to Texas. We have to have this pipeline of educated students ready to enter the workforce. And I believe that education savings accounts are part of creating the pipeline to a longer and more sustained innovation state. Are you finding some of these school districts, did you say you have 1,200 school districts around Texas? Is that, is that the number? Yeah, it's more than 1,200. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Do you find they have been the opposition to this or the school boards or who the teachers unions obviously tend to be uh, opposed to education savings accounts. But is that are they out sort of actively, you know, opposing this bill? Well, Jeff, the reality is, is that the bill is about money and superintendents are very concerned about the funding of their local district. And, you know, where Cindy lives, there were seven superintendents that had a uh, panel discussion on TV and talking about how bad this is going to be. And they only talked about how bad it is because if they lose one student or if, oh my gosh, for the love of God, they're going to lose five kids, that's going to absolutely decimate their budget. And so they're talking about students in terms of dollar signs, whereas we're talking about students in terms of outcomes and opportunities that are going to enrich our state. So superintendents are a massive obstacle, as is the school board. 
Yeah, and that's really the frustration, I think, of of these fights around the country is you've got folks who are, are more concerned about a school district and the impact on a school district than they are concerned about the impact on an individual student. And that's really what ESAs do is they empower parents and others to, to say, look, this, this school – and and most students in uh, when they have the choice of ESAs, most parents they choose to stay in the public school, exactly. right? But m- many do not. But for those who do, I mean, it's like uh, th- there are some people in the system who are okay with holding these kids hostage so that they can protect the system that they have. And I just think that's wrong, Genevieve. Any thoughts on that? Uh, you're a hundred percent spot on. Protectionism is the greatest obstacle to innovation and future success. And the only other caveat I would say is that in Texas, similar to any state in the South, or I I don't know, there's football everywhere now, but there's been this argument that if you create school choice in Texas, you're going to ruin Friday night lights. And I mean, football is a religion in Texas, but this is a ridiculous notion. And I, I just keep going back to if Tim Tebow who I'm, I'm a University of Tennessee graduate, so this pains me because we hate Florida. But if Tim Tebow can be a homeschooled student his entire K-12 education and be the number one recruited high school quarterback in 2005 and go win multiple national championships in the state of Florida, Friday night still goes on. And every child, every parent deserves choice, the educational freedom, and the desire to go execute and live their lives in the most fulfilling way. And that's what we are about and trying to achieve here in Texas. Yeah. Cindy, talk uh, a little bit about s- some of the work that you've been doing in, in your communities. Uh, you know, Genevieve talked about kind of statewide and what's happening in Texas. But talk about what you're doing to sort of rally the troops and organize your community to help get this ESA bill passed. Absolutely. Um, first of all, we started back in the actually the late winter and early spring um, with roundtable conversations, small town hall meetings, just gathering people together to, to listen to their concerns and how they felt about ESAs. And what we found um, was that, first of all, in our homeschool community, we found lots of people who were apprehensive about ESAs because they were afraid it would take away some of their autonomy, some of their freedom to choose, uh, use the curriculums that um, they chose for their children. And they basically didn't want any strings attached from the government to what they were doing in regards to homeschooling. But after, so we did a lot of education. We, We brought in a lot of experts. We brought in a lot of people who could explain to these parents that, you know, this is not taking away freedom. This is empowering you to do something even greater for your kids and allowing you to have the funding to do so. And so um, with lots of roundtable conversations and discussions, we were able to bring on some large groups of parents who are now advocates for what we are doing. Also, we began uh, having district office meetings with some of our uh, local legislators bringing in some parents to sit down face-to-face with them and just share their heart and explain what their concerns are. And I would like to say that our legislators here in East Texas have been very receptive to those conversations. They've loved hearing from their constituents because what we hear a lot of times when we talk to our representatives is, hey, we don't hear from anybody. We don't 
Nobody ever calls us and tells us that they want ESAs. So we've been really trying to get the word out to people that to let your voice be heard, that you need to let people know what you want. And secondly, we've also been um, holding back to school. the uh, We call them back to school of your choice events all throughout July and August in various uh, cities um, throughout um, districts here in East Texas. Uh, we had one in Palestine, Texas, one in Jacksonville, Texas, one in Corsicana, Texas, just recently had one in Centerville, Texas. And we're having like 30 to 40 parents show up at these events to find out more about ESAs. Um, they're also um, giving being given an opportunity to um, complete a petition and a survey, as well as write a personal letter to their legislators. We're making sure those get to the right places and continuing also just to bring awareness. And one of the things that Genevieve mentioned a second ago was just the fact that there's so much misinformation out there because they want to um, they want to spend this as an anti-public school, defund the public school. You know, we don't like teachers, uh, public school teachers uh, kind of thing, when in reality, um, as a retired public school educator, I had to think long and hard before I crossed this line, before I actually decided I'm going to be on the side of ESAs because this is, I have many, many friends still teaching, including family members in the public school system where they are working really hard to be successful and teach kids. And so it's not about, um, it's not about creating this animosity. It's, it's between the public school system and private school parents or homeschool parents, but it's about saying, like, like you said before, this is about kids, not systems. And I've been in a lot of school districts where I was told we, te- you know, the kids come first. We teach kids. We ke- we teach kids, not curriculum. Uh, and and as teachers, we were told uh, to believe that. But then, if you look at the way the systems operate, they actually don't operate in favor of kids. They do operate in favor of systems. And the protecting the system is important to a lot of these people. And I will have to say that a lot of the people that are working really hard to stand and standing beside me in this and have even gone and testified in Austin recently are retired public school teachers and administrators, not just teachers, but administrators who have said, you know, I'm not bound to the public school now. And I believe that this is a good thing. Now, I also want to tag on and say that there are some great public schools doing some great things, but all public schools are not the same. And even if your child is in a great public school, it still might not be the best fit for your child. Um, It's not always about whether it's a good school or a bad school, but sometimes it's just about what your particular uh, the needs are for your child. And that's where we have to begin to look at the narrative differently is that, you know, I had two children and they're four years apart in age and they both needed something completely different right. in order to be successful. And so yeah. we have to give people those options. Yeah, we do. It's about individualism. And I was thinking just before you said that, I was thinking about my own kids. I, that was going to be kind of my next statement was my kids are very different. They both required very different educational um, institutions uh, to, to, to flourish. One of the things I love about ESAs, and I'd love to hear some stories that both you and Genevieve have, have on this. One of the things I love about ESAs is the people they help the most are, are economically disadvantaged kids tend to get helped more by them. Minority kids get tend to be helped a little bit more by them. 
and kids with disabilities, right? Kids with disabilities, maybe they could be in the best school there is in a, in a public school system, the absolute best school. But if that school isn't teaching them in the way they need to learn, they're not going to flourish. And so to me, that's the value of being a, uh, having an ESA and teaching to individuals. Uh, tell us some of the stories, and I guess we'll start with you, Cindy. Um, what are some of the stories you're hearing from people? Well, there are so many. It's hard to it's hard to select one, but I will say that my friend uh, my friend Patty, who is one of uh, the people who went to Austin to testify, she has a really powerful story about a student that she taught in public school that was being bullied. Um, this student also had special needs and needed some very um, unique educational opportunities that were not being provided to him. And um, Patty tells the story about how that by the end of the year, they were able to solve the problem, get the students who were bullying him. Um, they got expelled. There were some disciplinary actions there. But then the very next year, um, Patty uh, retired and she never really knew what happened to this student. And a few years later, she was teaching at a local junior college and there was a young lady in her class with the same last name. And she said, hey, I taught someone um, with that last name in um, in when I was teaching public school. And she said, oh, that was that's my brother. And she said, well, how is he doing? And she said, well, unfortunately, he, he took his life. And Patty said, Oh my goodness. And it, it just really shocked her. But she said, yes, he never really fully recovered from all of the, um, the effects of what he went through during those critical periods of time in his education. And so I know that's a very drastic story and it's not a, a happy story, but it really resonated with Patty's heart because she said, you know, it made me realize that had there been another alternative and another choice for him, because at that point, his parents could not afford to put him in a private school or even homeschool him. So they continued to take him back to the very place where he was being bullied every single day. And I'm not saying bullying is the only reason people, you know, um, have issues um, with their schools. But it is one example of what some kids deal with. And there are also within the special ed education world um Special education gets a lot of federal funding. They get a lot of support um, and they have a lot of strings attached because of that. And it sounds like, oh, that's a great thing. We get all of this money, but that money has a lot of strings attached. My sister teaches special, special education in a large school district. And there are many times when and she teaches, um, she does teach to every child's specific needs. And I know that firsthand. But there are so many times when I feel like that she's has kids in her class that she said they need something different, something I can't provide, something I can't offer or my district doesn't offer. And yet they're not allowed or they don't have the abilities to move to other places. And she has seen some pretty devastating circumstances. And so, um, you know, educational savings accounts, while, yes, they do help low socioeconomic at-risk students, uh, minority students, as well as special needs students. I also have to speak to the average middle-class American family who doesn't have the money in their paycheck to go to a private school or even give up one of their jobs to stay home and homeschool. 
and yet they don't qualify for scholarships or any other type of special assistance to go to private schools. And those kids also need to be considered. And there are a lot of them out there that want other options and alternatives and they fall through the cracks. Yeah. Yeah. No question. I know we're almost out of time, but Genevieve, uh, I wanted to give you the opportunity. I don't know if you had any stories as well, but also if somebody wants to get involved and help get ESAs passed in Texas, where's the best place for them to go? Well, they should go to supportschoolchoice.com. We invite everyone to come to our website. You can sign a petition and showcase your support across the country as well as across Texas, www.supportschoolchoice.com. Um, Jeff, I'll, I will quickly leave you with this. We are AFP and the Libre Initiative brought in, like I said, over 45 people to come and testify in April. One of the folks that we brought from the Libre Initiative She had just become a United States citizen a year ago, and she came to testify, and she was so nervous that she testified in Spanish, and our Libre Engagement Director translated for for her, for for everyone on the diocese to hear her compelling testimony, and it was really about how in Mexico, they have no choices. They are... They don't even really get a high quality education, which is why so many uh, Mexicans come to Texas, uh, immigrate here, become part of the system and why they need they need choice and they need an ability to be the primary educator of their children. The Hispanic community in Texas is so paramount to the stories that we're telling because these folks know that there's a better future for their kids and they want to be empowered to have a, par- a say in their child's success. And just watching all of the legislators on the diocese kind of their minds be blown that someone with this much courage who just become an American citizen to stand up and in all of her nervousness, share her testimony and stand up for her own kids it was such a powerful moment that it's not it, it doesn't matter where you come from, what your skin color is, what you believe in. If you believe that your child matters, then this issue matters. And that was what was really compelling to see. Genevieve uh, and Cindy, thank you for for all the great work that you're doing. And thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having. Thank us, you Joe. for having us. Such great work being done in Texas, all across America in these states that are passing education savings accounts. And again, states that don't pass education savings accounts, they're leaving, they're going to be left in the dust on their education system. My prediction is 10 years down the road, states that haven't passed ESAs are going to look at it and say, we've got to do something. I mean, I think it's going to be something that almost every state will have passed in the next decade or so. Because it's so obvious, it brings the free market to bear in schools and in K-12 through education. Listen, these are really important. We heard so much about the individualism of education, and that's what this is about. It's about individual kids and the education that they're getting. It's not about a school district. It's not about a funding formula. It's not about a system. It's about kids, and we got to keep remembering that. All right, hey, liberty and freedom, they're easily taken for granted. Don't take it for granted. Go out there and defend freedom and liberty. Thanks for joining us.
Thank you for listening to American Potential. You may listen to more stories from Americans working every day to expand freedom and opportunity in their communities by visiting AmericanPotential.com. 